Good morning, and welcome to episode 493 of Effectively Wild, the daily baseball podcast at Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, soon to be a staff writer for Grantland. You are Sam Miller, editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus. How is that for an intro? Yeah, that's good. If it's at Baseball Prospectus, <laughs> don't you think we can just continue saying the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus? And probably, yeah, we probably could. Say, you know, with, with Ben Lindbergh from Grantland. Yeah, I think Something we, can, like do, that. I think we right. can do that. It is okay. still, still hosted by Baseball Prospectus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How was your All-Star Game experience? Uh, it was okay. You had some good uh, tweets. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, I uh, I counted the entire time. I was counting. Yeah. Oh right, you were counting cheater references, right? Not well. I was, but not only that. I decided that wasn't telling. So uh, I counted every reference made to every player. Uh huh. So anytime a player was named, <laughs> so I you... counted. Did you see any of the game, or were you just marking names in the spreadsheet the whole time? It, you know, you'd be surprised, but actually the naming of ballplayers in a game in which they're playing happens quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> so it happened quite a bit. There, I have, I don't know, what do I have? I probably have... The I, che- I mean, the 600, cheater... 600 the che- check marks, maybe? Check marks, that's how you did it, huh? The, did, you, did you write down every player in baseball? And with a blank line next to their name. Just no, in case. if if a if a non ball player, if a non all star was named, I didn't I didn't bother and okay. uh, I didn't I I do have to figure out did anybody not play? I think there were pitchers who didn't pitch, right? Batantis didn't pitch. Oh, Houston Street didn't pitch. Uh-huh. So uh um, amazingly not named. Like <laughs> those poor guys don't get named. Uh-huh. There was nobody who was named during the game who didn't get into the game. No, no check marks for Tony Gwynn on there either. No check. That's right. <laughs> no. Very good. Yeah. Um, so how many? Okay. So if if this is not spoiling the, ah. the article that you counted for, I would love to know the count of Jeter references. Uh, I don't. I don't. I'm not sure. It's probably not spoiling. I mean, it is spoiling. It probably doesn't matter if I spoil, but just. Just for the sake of uh, having options, I'm going to choose not to reveal that yet. <laughs> okay. Will this counting will article be, that, be up today? Uh, well, it should. It's supposed to. That's the mm-hmm. thing. Yes. On the other, I mean, you know, it's it's uh, 9:15, and I usually go to bed at 9:45. So something's got to give, Ben. <sighs> no, this is the uh, this is the job that you've signed up for. Yeah. Late, late I, nights. I think I'll get it. I think I'll get it done. I, I have to do. Another thing too, though, so it's going to be crazy night. Tell me about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Paul Boy, by the way, uh, also counted Jeter references um, independently of me. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't, of course, count <laughs> Michael Brantley references, uh, <laughs> but he did count Jeter references. Some people might have seen that, and I, I will just note um, that if you've seen that. Uh, that is not the same as as what I counted because uh, for a couple of reasons. One, Paul, so far as I can tell, was counting pregame as well. The you know, almost entire pregame show was dedicated to Jeter, so his number uh, he bowed out in the fourth inning, and his number was already much higher than mine was. Uh, the other thing is that he counted, as did I. He counted camera shots on Jeter uh-huh. uh, separately, 
Um, and uh, but he, I, cho- I chose not to count any any camera shots where Jeter was the center of actual action. Uh, so only only superfluous. Did you count? So not montages. I counted montages. Yeah. The post game I mean, show the the montages in the post game show seemed to get out of the director's control. Like they they became self aware. They said we're going to show you a short note from Derek yeah. Jeter, and then they showed like a five minute montage Did you hear of that? Jeter. When he said we're gonna go to, yeah, we're he said like, "Oh no!" <laughs> someone, someone frantically goes, "Oh yeah. no!" <laughs> yeah, and, uh, then, and then there was the montage, and then there was a few minutes of talking, and then a commercial, and then like the same montage again, or at least oh, part of it. Uh, well, I uh, no montages count. I, what I'm saying is that like when Jeter was at bat, I didn't count that. So every shot during his at bat didn't count. When he was, you know, fielding a ball, I didn't count that. When he was running to second on a wild pitch, I didn't count that. So uh, different, different parameters. I counted a bunch of other things. I counted how many, uh, how many innings Jeter was either the intro or the outro, like the first or the last shot coming out of or going to a commercial. Uh, I counted uh, slow motion. Um, I counted uh, Jeter and Trout together. I counted captain references, and um, I think that's it. And that's all I counted. Mm-hmm. Decent game, though. Other than the, you know, the too much cheater and the, the Wainwright stuff and the, the no Gwyn or whatever complaints you had about the broadcast, the actual game was, was decent. Yeah, the Wainwrights, you say the Wainwright stuff, like, that was a bad part. Uh, I don't that was know. a good part. That was a was colorful it? part. Uh, yeah, I suppose. I don't know. I was, I was on Twitter, so I was tired of it already by the fourth inning. And then it <laughs> changed and it came back full force once once he recanted his initial statement tim burke who you know is bubba Prague, mm-hmm. says that there were 93 mentions of jeter on the fox deportes broadcast hmm. uh so apparently uh i I'm, I'm i'm definitely getting oh tim, oh interesting burke has a hundred for the fox broadcast uh-huh. uh and i i don't <laughs> you don't no hmm. sli- slightly fewer so we're going to have to have a recount. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the All-Star game. Now we have a day with no baseball. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the listener email show. We got your listener emails. We will answer some of them now. This one comes from Adam in Dallas. Hypothetical time. You are a right fielder in Major League Baseball. Your team's pitcher is throwing a perfect game in the bottom of the ninth. But this isn't your average perfect game. The starter has struck out the previous 26 batters, and your team is up by 10 oh, runs. hang on. I got to inter- introduce. Uh, yeah. I got to interrupt real okay. quick. Okay. Uh, I'm looking at some of uh, uh, Bubba Prague's uh, data, and he includes crowd chants uh, because that's part of the uh, – and I debated whether or not to, crowd, to count crowd chants, and I decided not to. Uh-huh. Okay. So there you go. All right. Good. I'm glad the difference is accounted for. All right, so he again... Might, he might also be counting the Jordan ad. I'm not sure. Mm. So the scenario, it's the bottom of the ninth. It's uh, your pitcher's per- throwing a perfect game. You're the right fielder. The starter has struck out 26 batters. Your team is up by 10 runs. The ball is hit, and you are camped under it well into ter- foul territory. Think O.co amount of foul territory. What do you do? Catch the ball, ensuring your pitcher gets the perfect game or let it drop to risk the perfect game, but giving the pitcher a chance at something truly spectacular. Does the number of strikes on the batter at the plate factor into your decision? Would you ever consider doing it on anything but the last out? And I think this this question might be more interesting and maybe slightly more realistic if 
if we're talking about a 21 strikeout game, maybe. If we're, mm-hmm. let's say he has 20 strikeouts, not 26, and it's two outs in the bottom of the ninth, and you are deep into foul territory, do you drop the ball to get the 21 strikeout game that you personally have wanted to see for some time? Um, well, I can tell you that as a person, I mean, as a person who's who's rooted for 21 strikeout games, you know, who's rooted, who's seen pitchers at, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, late in the game, uh, I'm, I'm always miserable when, an, an, you know, when this situation comes up and the guy chooses to catch it. Um, but of course I would even, I'm, I'm also miserable when, you know, the third baseman fields it and doesn't throw the ball away. And there's only a certain amount of kind of engineering the defense is allowed to do, uh, or should do. I think, um, if it were, uh, so this is a perfect game, and also he has 20 strikeouts mm-hmm. and a foul ball uh, will not affect the result, but mm-hmm. will give him a chance to lose the perfect game. I'm assuming that there are two strikes. If it were three, well, he one... he asks, does the number of strikes on the batter at the plate factor into your decision? Yeah, well, it should. If it were th- if it were a three zero pitch that the guy hit foul, yeah. I'd catch it. Yeah. If it were a 2-0 pitch, I'd catch it. <laughs> if it were a 1-0 pitch, uh, I think I'd probably catch it. And if there, if it was at least the second strike, you know, so 0-1, 1-1, 2-1, I would let it drop. And probably 3-1, I would let it drop. I'd hope to have the foresight to ask the pitcher what he would like me to do in this situation. It does seem like this is a living will sort of situation. Yes, I would not want the responsibility for making this split-second, spur-of-the-moment decision that could affect this pitcher's legacy forever to fall to me. So I'd, I'd have a little mound conference before this last out. Do you think that there are any things like this that you and I should go over so that we know the other's <laughs> desires in case we don't have time to... I mean, because sometimes we're able to to message each other mm-hmm. in the middle of a podcast, but sometimes you're not online. That's true. Um, I don't know. If uh, I'm taking a trip tomorrow or today, people are listening to this. So if, if anything were to happen to me, I would want you to end the week on a multiple of five. Just so you okay. do that. All right. Other than that, I'm not sure what else. Okay. Okay. This question comes from Dan who says, suppose you were to put together two 25-man rosters, one from a pool of all-stars and the other from the top players who didn't make the all-star team. What would the probability of the what would the probability be of the non-all-stars winning? I don't doubt that it would be less than 50%, but is it 49, 45, 40? Imagine I imagine that they would have to play a series of games to get full use of rotations, benches, and bullpens. So maybe the better question is if they play a hundred games, how many would the non-All-Stars win. Derek Norris um, today, uh, when talking to Susan Slusser, wondered aloud how many games the All-Star team would win if they were together for the whole year. Uh-huh. So it's a similar question, but it's a different question, but a similar question. So I guess we can answer both of those. Yeah, so he didn't, so he didn't an offer all-star an answer. Team, an All-Star team, the All-Star team against the, I guess, for want of a better word, snub team, Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And the all-star team against basically the league average team minus all of their all-stars. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so the snub team, I mean, nobody gets snubbed anymore, really. You right. Know, Joe yeah. Richards. And... Every, every player who's good at baseball makes the all-star team, it mm-hmm. seems like. 
Yeah, pretty much. Um, that's true. Um, but uh, I mean, that's not actually true, right? Because no, not quite. There are a lot of there are a lot of great players who didn't have you know a great first half or um, uh, what you know the other ways that you don't make the All Star team. Uh, mm-hmm. So n- they're not necessarily snubbed. But they just were unavailable, or you know, they they were injured for half the season. I mean, Chris Sale almost missed it for Pete's sake. He didn't because mm-hmm. the fans voted him in, but he would have. Mm-hmm. And Chris Sale is, you know, one of the three best pitchers in baseball. So it it can certainly happen. Strasburg didn't make it, uh, for instance. Um, you know, I, I don't know who else jumps out at you. Bryce Harper didn't make it. Buster Posey didn't make it. Joey Votto mm-hmm. didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dustin Pedroia didn't make it um you can put together a really good team i'm not actually sure that i'm not a hundred percent sure i'm pretty confident that the all-star team would would win yeah. but i'm not a hundred percent confident that the all-star team would win i'm just i've just named enough good names that i'm somewhat hesitant to say automatically um but yeah the all-star team would win it would so win, but let's say let's say home field advantage worth of games they'd, they'd win 54 percent Hmm. I'll go a little bit higher. If we're yeah, if we're talking, I mean yeah, if we're talking about a full, full season, I I would say, I'd say fifty six. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Kenley, Kenley Jansen didn't make it, as far as I can tell. Uh, no. Uh, it's hard to know at this point because there are so many players. Right. <laughs> I can yeah. hardly keep track of who's an all star anymore. Did Madison the, Bumgarner make it? The teams are announced, and then the week after that is just this guy dropped out, and this guy's replacing him, and then that guy drops out, and this guy's replacing him, and I I don't even try to keep track anymore. Bumgarner did make it, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you can put together a pretty a pretty good team. I, mean, I don't think you'd be able. To, I guess what I'm saying is that I think that if you took somebody who had been missing for the uh, past, you know eight months or whatever, um, and just plumped them down in, in front of that game, that hypothetical game we're talking about, uh, I'm not sure they would be able to tell which game they, which team was which. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. If they, they, maybe at the beginning of the game they could, uh, but otherwise, the, personnel-wise, they'd be awfully close to indistinguishable. Right. Uh, and probably and certainly, certain... I certainly I think you'd have to watch the entire game to be able to tell, basically. Mm-hmm. And certain parts of the team, I wonder what the what the biggest difference would be in terms of, you know, bullpen, starting rotation, starting lineup, where the biggest gap would be between the all stars and the, the snubs. I would I would guess that like the the snub relievers would be just about as good as the all star relievers. Probably not a big difference there. Um, well, there's never a very big difference between relievers, but I will note that the consensus top six in the reliever leagues this year <laughs> were Kimbrel, Chapman, Jansen, Holland, Rosenthal, and Uehara. Mm-hmm. And, and almost nobody went ahead of those six in almost any league. And uh, four of them made the All-Stars. Mm-hmm. And, and two did not. Uh-huh. Okay, so how about... All stars versus Clippard. Clippard, by the way, pretty close to consensus number seven. Uh, did make it. Joaquin Benoit was was very high. Did not. So uh, Jake McGee was very high and did not. 
so yeah, you're probably right. Although I, I think that it's the relievers are at least I think the relievers would be better. Uh, I think you could maybe om- eh. well, I could almost see the starting pitchers being because if you don't get your wins, like the good relievers are closers and they get their saves and saves are you know more you know a huge part of how you get to the All Star game. But if you don't get your wins, I mean it's pretty easy to not get your wins in a half of a season. And if you don't get your wins, you usually don't make the All Star team. So I'm not sure that that starting pitcher wouldn't be where the gap was the smallest. Uh huh. Yeah, that could be. Um, it could be. Probably not. So, all right. So then, how about not snubs? How about just All Stars versus whatever the other thing we said was versus an All Starless league? Um, uh-huh. I I would say, uh, like. A hundred and thirty wins in a full season. <laughs> really? Well, it's because it's an all-starless league. You've taken the ninety best players out of the league. If it were, if it were against a league, and I, that might be slightly low. It's just that you're pushing the boundaries of what any baseball team can do. Uh, if it were against the league as constituted with those all-stars, like there were just clones made, then I'd still say a high hundred teens, like hundred and eighteen to. Maybe up to 124. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah, if you took the if you took all the all stars out, how many above average players do you think you would have on your roster? You'd still have some, right? Yeah. So, uh, well, so yeah, you how have... many how many players are average? Um, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's I don't know how many players are above average. I don't either. Mm, but but you'd still have some above average. Yeah, let me ask you this. Let me some. ask you this. Mm-hmm. Just curious. Let's say that you had this roster, this all-star roster, and they were playing a full season. Uh, how much would they be hurt by the fact that the good players all come out in the fourth inning, <laughs> or or would it help over the course of a long season with the value of being able to do that and having the depth in which nobody ever gets tired? Uh, you have insane backups at every position in case someone gets hurt. All the pitchers are only throwing one inning at a time, uh, <laughs> and you have enough where basically you know you can have them. You can have an all reliever um, pitching staff, but they're the best starters in the world. Uh, how would which team would they be better or worse over the course of a full season if they played like a regular team or if they played like an all star team does with roster substitutions? Hmm. I wonder because the you know, we always talk about the the idea of doing the all bullpen rotation and just just not having a starting pitcher, just having everyone go one or two innings, and whether maybe that would be more efficient if teams could actually conquer the various obstacles to doing that. And if they are playing by all star game rules, then they're already doing that, and they're getting that advantage, not just keeping guys fresh and maybe not getting hurt, but also not having the times through the order penalty and yet having great pitchers, even in the late innings, despite the fact that they're doing that. So I would say, I would say it might, might help or at least be a wash. Yeah. Still got lots of, uh, still got lots of good players who come in and plus, I mean, the all-star starters are not necessarily even the best players on the team i mean you know sometimes they're they're Derek jeter so maybe 
in that case, it's it's a good thing that the starters are not in the full game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's take this question from a different Adam who said, as I ponder how my Reds are going to craft their payroll around the $25 million they'll owe to the 220 hitting Joey Votto in 2021. Of course, 220 hitting Joey Votto will still probably have a 350 on base or something, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on the maximum length of a contract you'd be willing to sign a player to, maybe for a 25, 28, and 30-year-old player. Also, what do you believe will be the tipping point to scare teams off from giving non-Troutian players super long contracts? I wonder whether it will be a player we've already seen signed. I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. If it were if it were Howard plus Verlander plus, I don't know, maybe, maybe Mikel Cabrera's contract, depending on how that goes. But even just, like, if you're... If you're a team who's considering extending the best starter in baseball, say, and you have the Justin Verlander contract in your mind, you might you might be certainly I, I think we'll see less of the extending or signing players before you have to, the the two years before they're actually free agent type of extension. I I just I think that what we likely see is um, teams just demanding a little bit more of a discount for yeah, the rest. Sure, or that. Mm-hmm. So I don't. Is there a? I don't know if the, it's hard to say if there's a maximum, a maximum length. Is there a certain year beyond which you would not go? Certain number of years for, for let's say. Uh, I mean, these are the condition is that these are non-trout players, but if you if you had a twenty-five-year-old superstar and you expected him to age normally follow whatever the the standard aging curve is is there a a number of years at which you would draw the line no not really i mean i if the price was right Right. there was some discount Mm -hmm. for my risk i mean i've i'm in i'm all in favor of the 15 or 20 year deal for pre-arb guys as long as you get a good enough discount um so not i mean not Really, the mm-hmm. way things are now, uh, there's still not even there's no red line. I mean, I would rather have almost everybody for less. Um, so I don't know. I it's hard to say. I mean, we every time somebody signs a long deal, uh, we fight the uh, the instinct to just sort of say the same repetitive thing about the deal, uh, which is that it's a whole lot of risk. It makes them better in the short term, but it sure is a whole lot of risk, and we don't really know how this is going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these things tend to work out pretty poorly, but on the other hand, everybody's happy today. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, by drawing a red line, I don't want to then, in my head, think that I have to say the same thing about any deal that goes beyond that. But all long deals are generally worse than short deals. Mm-hmm. And you take them on because you have to or because you're dumb or because you get some sort of discount for your effort. Mm-hmm. And in the first and third cases... Um, it's understandable. And in the second one, well, we all make mistakes. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, right. There's no real, real way to answer that without considering the contract. Cause if the money comes down far enough, then any number of years makes sense. Maybe it's a, maybe you're paying him a thousand dollars in the last year and you'll sign him to a Bobby Bonilla contract. I don't know, but that's, that's a hard one to, 
to say that there's a certain number of years that you wouldn't go beyond. Um, all right, let's do this one from Scott in Pelham, New York. Watching the World Cup final on Sunday, it was amazing how quickly the German defenders would double-team and sometimes triple-team Lionel Messi when he controlled the ball on the German side of the field. Throughout the tournament, Messi appeared to be orders of magnitude better than almost all his teammates and opponents, not unlike Mike Trout. Baseball's batter-pitcher matchup is celebrated as an individual confrontation, but what if the rules could be changed to allow double-teaming of Mike Trout? What would those rules look like, and how could they successfully neutralize Trout, as well as the German side shut down Messi in the final? So there's seven, basically there's seven defenders on the field at any given time. And um, so let's say you face 40 batters in the game. There's cumulatively 280 defenders. So I guess the equivalent would be if you were allowed to uh, add defenders to certain plays so long as you subtracted them from others and kept Uh a balance. So when Trout was batting, you could have, say, 12 defenders. And when the pitcher was up, you could have, say, two plus the pitcher and the catcher and just uh, set him up in shallow left center and right center and pray that he pops it up or strikes out, which Mm -hmm. is... uh, The problem is that, um, you know, so much of Trout's damage... I mean, obviously, Trout gets lots of hits. But if you take out his home runs, I would assume this is true. I think this is probably true. Might not be, but I think it's probably true. I think if you take out his home runs, he's probably a, a negative value hitter, hmm. right? Like if you if just you just made all, all his home, home runs out, just yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, or just remove them. They just didn't exist. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I don't know what he would hit at that point, but he he would probably be some. I don't know. Maybe Trout. Maybe he, Trout wouldn't quite be there, but like Michael Kadir probably would be, or some. You know, a lot of yeah. hitters probably would be. Trout might. Trout does enough that maybe he wouldn't, but Trout's the best hitter in the world. Um, yeah. But anyway, the point is that you can't do anything about those home runs unless you had, unless it was, um, I don't know, maybe you could, maybe you could, um, if you had 12 defenders, uh, maybe you could just be obsessive about pitching to the ground ball or something, but probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think Trout would actually still be a pretty good hitter without home runs. Yeah, <laughs> I think he would. He's... Although, let me see. So uh, he would, for instance, his slugging percentage would be, uh, I'm, I'm not going to count the home runs as outs. I'm just going to count them as uh, they don't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, his slugging percentage would be 375. So yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. He's really good. <laughs> yes, pretty good, uh, yeah. But anyway, the point is that a lot of that value comes from the home runs, and you can't do anything to defend those, uh, no matter how many people you put there. So it might not, it might actually not be worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, that's that's what I would think that the yeah. that the rule change would be that would allow you to do it. I don't think that you, I mean, the, otherwise you just intentionally walk him. That the the double, closest thing to a double team is the intentional walk, right? And yeah. Mm-hmm. Joe Posnanski has when Joe Posnanski hates the intentional walk for. Um, you know, aesthetic and competitive reasons as mm-hmm. much as, as anything else. And I think that um, I think that he'll, he's noted, I think, that he's noted the difference between that and, say, double-teaming a defender. In the one case, you're still having to, to defend him. You, you know, he can still beat you. You're still, you're doing everything you can to defend him, but you still do have to stop him. An intentional walk is just not. Mm-hmm. Okay. You want to do play index? Yeah. Sure. Um, so this was uh, in response to a question that was asked 
by James, who says, I never thought the Braves could find a more harmful spot in their lineup for B.J. Upton until they moved him to the leadoff spot. So my question is, in terms of a catch-all offensive stat, who had the worst offensive season at each spot in the batting order, uh, subject to a minimum number of plate appearances in each spot? Obviously, I'm imagining some replacement-level middle infielder atop the list for the second spot of the batting order, but I'd be interested to see where B.J. Upton's 2013 falls. Um, so I did this. I was curious, too. I thought this was a interesting thing to ask. Uh, so I um, did this for each spot in the lineup, but instead of doing OPS or something like that for all of them, I did the stat that I thought was sort of, you know, the best indication for the lineup position um, as best I could. So I have a slightly different standards for each spot. But um, I went back to 1988 to, uh, one, uh, avoid having to go to old boring baseball because those guys uh, have names we don't know. Uh, and also just to somewhat smooth out the offensive environment. Uh, obviously, there's a big difference between 2000 and 1988, but at least it's somewhat smoother than if you go back to, like, 1918. Um, so here we go. So leadoff hitter. Uh, I went with on-base percentage for leadoff hitters, and the worst on-base percentage for a leadoff hitter since 1988 is Angelton Simmons last year. Hmm. Uh, which is surprising because Angelton Simmons was not an offensive zero last year at all. He had mm -hmm. good pop. He never strikes out. He had a good second half. And I was shocked to find that, in fact, he batted leadoff um, more than 300 times. 300 plate appearances was my minimum. And he had a 256 on base percentage, which is the worst in modern baseball history. Um, if you look at where he, uh, how he did in other spots of the lineup, batting second, he had a 361 on base percentage in 84 plate appearances. Batting sixth, he had a 412 on base percentage in 35 plate appearances. Batting seventh, he had a 349 on base percentage in 86 plate appearances. Batting eighth, he had a 301 on base percentage and like a 450 slugging percentage in 135 plate appearances. So this uh, is one of those uh, rare cases where a guy was so much worse in one spot in the order that Probably everybody around him is convinced that he can never bat leadoff. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask you whether that would be enough to convince you that he could not hit leadoff. He's only he's only hit leadoff one time this year. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I just generally wouldn't want him to bat leadoff based on his <laughs> right. skill set. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't think it would be enough to convince mm -hmm. me. Uh, no, uh, not 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 through 300 plate appearances, especially because they're also grouped together by time. And that could be a confounding variable if mm -hmm. he was simply figuring things out um, and uh, figured them out after he left the spot. So, no, I would not consider it to necessarily be in, um, a factor. Although, if there was any position in the lineup where you would think it might be mm -hmm. uh, that some players are better or worse suited or that I guess that the uh, preparation and mental aspect of batting there would affect them, it would be first or eighth. So, mm -hmm. uh, may, you know, I, I probably would lower the plate appearance threshold to make a decision like that in the yep. leadoff hitter's case. But, no, I'm not ruling out Angelton Simmons' mental fortitude or anything like that. Nope. Yeah, not not without knowing anything else. Not without uh, all right. him saying so, for instance. Yeah. Okay. Uh, num number two spot also went with on-base percentage. Jack Wilson in 2001 had a 255 on base percentage, but this was his rookie year, but he did lead the league in sacrifice bunts 
And so I, could, I, om- I would almost guarantee you that despite his 0.1 war that year, if you looked really closely through the newspaper archives of the Pittsburgh whatever, Pittsburgh Gazette, Post-Gazette, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, I think, uh, for that year, I bet you can find an example of his manager saying that, in fact, he was the team's most valuable player. Uh, (laughs) One of my favorite things about the summer is seeing who gets uh, described as perhaps the team's most valuable player. I especially like it on teams where there is another player who is actually the league's most valuable player or in contention, but he's not the true MVP. No, the true MVP is almost always somebody who plays multiple positions uh, or can pinch hit uh, mm-hmm. or became the long man when they really needed depth in the bullpen. It's always somebody like that, and I love it. Yeah, the little uh, things. Number uh, The number three spot in the order is uh, Junior Felix. Um I went with uh, OPS for this. Junior Felix had a 638 OPS uh, in 1992. Uh, Two things about Junior Felix. One is that um, he was in my favorite internet post of all time, uh, which was by Grant Brisby. And all it was was an image of (laughs) like a triangle, like almost like the like the recycle, reduce, reuse triangle, you know, where it's like Mm -hmm. an arrow and it connects. Um, But it said like uh, Junior Felix... And then it, Felix went into Felix Jose, and then Jose went into Jose Cruz Jr., which uh-huh. went into Junior Felix, and it just went eternally, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's one thing about Junior Felix now that uh-huh. I've noted that. That was by Grant Prisby. I don't know if I said that. You did. Uh, but so the thing about Junior Felix is that he actually probably was the third best hitter on his team that year, he, <laughs> uh, despite having the 246 289 361 batting line these are the top nine uh on that team uh the the nine regulars on baseball reference uh they are um the ops pluses of these nine 72 78 89 64 70 88 junior felix's 82 78 and 63 63 was Hubie Brooks. I'm pretty sure he was the cleanup hitter. Um, and he hit 216, 247, 337, or at least he was sometimes the cleanup hitter. Uh, big acquisition for them, um, maybe the previous year. Vaughn Hayes was also a big acquisition for them. I think he hit fifth and hit 225, 305, 326. Luis Soho was the best hitter. He had 89. <laughs> Hope gets plus. And Luis Soho was, of course... That's not. <laughs> that's not a uh, sentence that anyone wants to hear about their team. <laughs> no, and let's see. Soho uh, that year batted most often second, um, so at least they had him up in the order. And then the second best hitter, actually by OPS plus after Soho, but before Junior Felix, was Luis Polonia. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> yeah. So in fact, they did have their three best hitters batting one, two, three in the lineup. <laughs> Well, that's good. At least that is the good. <laughs> sabermetricians weren't mad. Yeah. Uh, all right. Cleanup hitters. Uh, I went with fewest home runs, uh, and it's Alan Trammell, who hit three home runs, batting cleanup, mostly full-time in 1989. And I, uh, I'm i glad I went with home runs because we have a contender, Ben. There's mm. a contender this year. Uh, there is a cleanup hitter out there who has only one home run, and he has already cleared the 300 plate appearance threshold. Wow. Do you know who it is? J.J. Hardy. It's not J.J. Hardy. In fact, it, 
we were talking about all-star snubs, and if Garrett Richards is the consensus all-star snub in the American League, I sort of sensed by the amount of columns that this guy was the consensus snub or maybe one of the consensus snubs in the National League. Does mm. that help? I don't think I read a single all-star snub column this year. Casey McGee. Oh, okay. Uh, one home run mm-hmm. out of the cleanup spot. So he's got to hit two. Otherwise, we have a new record. So this is a thing to pay attention to, everybody. <laughs> All right. Number five uh, spot in the batting order, I went with slugging percentage. Tim Wallach slugged 311 uh, in 1992 for the Montreal Expos. Incidentally, Casey McGee in 2011 was fourth. Uh, the fourth worst in, in modern history in this. So he's all over this. Uh, but Wallach that year, um, you know, obviously he batted fifth pretty much full-time for the Expos. And then the Expos' fifth spot in the Expos' batting order overall, total, in total, all the people who batted fifth, had fewer total bases than any spot in the lineup, which is really an accomplishment because yeah. they also had, I mean, they had seven more plate appearances than, you know, the number eight hitters. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, they're the number five hitters. and they, But they had fewer total bases than any spot in the lineup besides pitcher. They also had the lowest on-base percentage. So lowest on-base percentage and lowest slugging percentage for any spot in the lineup was their number five spot. Next week's play and deck segment can be telling us whether any other team has done that. Uh, sure. Yeah, could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, number six, uh, I'm just going OPS now from here on out. The number six spot in the lineup, Gary Carter in 1988, had a 593 OPS. We also have a contender here, Dom Brown, currently at 578, 15 points lower than Carter. uh, Needs 58 more plate appearances in the sixth spot if he gets them and doesn't improve. He will have the lowest OPS in modern history in the sixth spot of the order. Uh, Number seven spot, Kurt Manwaring, 574. And number eight spot, Alfredo Griffin, 513. Also, by the way, Alfredo Griffin also has the lowest isolated power in history for the eighth spot at point oh two nine in a different year. Hmm. Two different years where he set futility records for the eighth spot. Like, <laughs> of all the, the worst hitters in history, arguably the two worst seasons were by Alfredo Griffin, who played forever and was himself an all-star. Yeah. Yeah, Alfredo Griffin, I've enjoyed looking at his baseball reference page before. That seems like that seems like the page of a player who couldn't play today or who yeah, could well, who could not get that many plate appearances today. Baseball has he, changed, I think, too much for Alfredo Griffin to do what he did. You think so? I mean, I think so. He came up a lot when I was doing my Unieski Betancourt most consecutive sub replacement level years because yeah. he was the previous. He had five years in a row of full time play. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, he he had uh, yeah five years in a row of, of full time play with negative wars. Uh, um, but you know, Uni did it. Yeah, Uni did it. Um, Alfredo Griffin has looking at his defensive stats. He has a Below average career fielding runs above average at Baseball Prospectus. Uh, he has he has like positive nine defensive WAR or at Baseball Reference, so that's quite a bit better. So maybe, but he he did win one Gold Glove. Yeah, and Rookie of the Year. 
Yes. You know the all-star, you know the story of his all-star appearance, right? No. Uh, somebody had to bow out <clears throat> of the all-star game like the day of, and he had just happened to be in town. Ah, was, uh-huh. That was literally it. It was like he was in town, so they put him on the roster. He was having a terrible year. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe the world is still safe for Alfredo Griffin, but I'm skeptical. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the end of the play index segment. Good work. Thanks. I like that one. Um, so go to baseballreference.com, use the coupon code BP to get the discounted Griffin press. played. Griffin played, by the way. How did he do? Uh, did not bat. Came in as a defensive replacement for Cal Ripken and then was pinch hit four <laughs> <laughs> before he could bat, uh-huh. <laughs> which is fitting. I mean, he was considered an all-star level defender. Yeah. So I guess they let him play. They let him do his all-star thing. Mm-hmm. It's fair. Yeah. I saw someone, and I don't remember who now, suggest that the if we want to keep the every team has to have an all-star rule, and yet we also want to make the game count, then the all-star should be chosen by what they how, how much they actually help the team so that if, uh, if a bad team had, say, a guy who would be a really good pinch runner or a really good fourth outfielder or something, he would make the team even though he is not necessarily the best player on that bad team, just because mm-hmm. he'd give the all-star team the best chance to win. Mm-hmm. So that's the Al- Alfredo Griffin recommendation. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so use the coupon code BP to subscribe to the Baseball Reference Play Index. Get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We highly recommend it, as always. Let's take this question from Brett who says the rapid improvement in the technology used to track pitchers and fielders means that recording players' contributions to their team's success with close to 100% accuracy is foreseeable in the very near future. My question is about the least least consequential aspect of the coming improvements to warp, war, wind shares, and other composite measures, Hall of Fame voting. Most of last week's topics on the podcast dealt in some way with your legacies, and rightly so given Friday's announcement. Something you may not have considered is that you may be members of the last generation of baseball writers who will debate the Hall of Fame credentials of the players you've made a living covering. We can't know if Chase Utley produced more for his teams than Todd Hilton, Robbie Abreu, or Gary Sheffield. The answer for Buxton, Russell Correa, and their contemporaries is going to be much, much clearer. So who do you think might end up being your Jim Rice or Bruce Suter or Jack Morris, the player you vote for because he seemed like a Hall of Famer, and your Ron Santo or Burt Blylevin or Alan Trammell, the player you don't vote for because he didn't seem like one, and your Bernie Williams, who's Joe, Joe Sheehan's pick, or Dale Murphy, who's Joe Pesnanski's pick, as the player you'd happily vote for if you thought he had a chance. So that's a good question, I guess. Is, is StatCast or or whatever motion tracking technology comes to the fore, is that going to kill Hall of Fame debates? Will we not have to have them anymore because uh, we can just add up the, the wins above replacement and actually be confident that they are, that they are correctly appraising the player? Uh, well, I'm pretty confident they're correctly appraising the player mm-hmm. already. I mean, the, with the exception of pitching, where there's disagreement about how much to credit the pitcher for the, you know, for various things that happen behind him, uh, you see some some you know decent differences in career value for pitching on that uh, you know pure model 
uses FIP, uh, it's going to come up with something different than if your model uses ERA, um, adjusted for defense, and so on and so forth. So that actually, I don't think a system is necessarily going to fix that. That's a philosophical question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but otherwise, I feel pretty okay that uh, by the end of a career, we have a pretty good handle on a guy's defense. Um, but yeah, we're already, I mean, we're already basically, we've, I think we've already, I think we've talked about some aspect of this before, um, that there's, it's both, uh, kind of an excuse, sort of like when we do, when, when we do our hall of fame ballots, um, for BP, we being me and the staff, mm-hmm. not, not, <laughs> not me, not me, no, uh, uh, on the one hand, it feels inexcusable to use anything other than basically a warp leaderboard mm-hmm. to to fill it out because uh, I can't really justify anything other than that. Yeah. And on the other hand, it feels pointless and boring and no value added if we're all doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you you know you kind of end up doing that and then so, sort of tossing in like the eleventh guy instead of the ninth just so that there's a little bit of flair mm-hmm. to your ballot, but. Otherwise, it's, you know, that's that's what you got. It's already kind of boring. I could see, though, to answer the question about who my Bernie Williams or Dale Murphy would be, like, um, I'm 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 voting for Buster Posey, mm-hmm. certainly, and <laughs> uh, it seems conceivable that he could be just short at the end of this um, as a catcher. Catchers are already fairly low uh, in general, and you know, things happen to their careers that cut them short. Maybe he's not that great after 33 or something. He missed basically a full season in his prime. But no, he's definitely in as far as I'm concerned. If he has any sort of career going forward, I'm putting Buster Posey in. So <laughs> he's probably that guy for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, when we have done those bouts in the past, it's, you know, I'll look at Jay Jaffe's system or something. And Jay Jaffe's system is is largely based on, on war. And it's, I mean, it's almost entirely just based on whether guys exceed or don't exceed whatever the established war baseline at that position is among Hall of Famers. And and there's always, uh, like, the edge cases, the guys who maybe are within a few wins one way or another of whatever the baseline is, and and then you can kind of play around with it, and maybe you, you think that player was a good clubhouse guy or whatever. He, I don't know, whatever whatever the criteria you use to push a guy uh, a few wins one way or another, you could, you could argue in favor of him. But yeah, I would, I mean, most of the debate right now is people who don't trust war or whatever the, the win value statistic is versus people who do, right? That's, that's basically the, the debate we have right now. It's someone, someone saying there are three different wars. They can't even figure out how to calculate it. Why should I trust that stat? And then there are the people who do trust that stat more or less. And as time goes on, there will be more and more of the latter and fewer, fewer of the former. So, so yes, I would, I would expect that debates about player value will, will become less interesting if you consider them interesting now. Um, but I don't know. There are there are more ways to make them interesting by talking about how those players arrived at that value than we currently have, which is the good thing. Deadspin just posted a video of all 100 times Jeter's <laughs> name was mentioned on Fox. Oh, uh, you got scooped. So you could have saved yourself not, all that trouble. I could have saved myself all that trouble. <laughs> I, it's, I'm happy to get scooped. I'm miserable to get scooped late. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, they're counting pregame. Oh, well... 
yeah. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to count pregame or postgame in my official count. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. All right. Um, so that's it for today. Uh, someone will be back tomorrow. Maybe we will be back tomorrow. Sam will be back tomorrow. I'll be back tomorrow. Queen Charlotte Islands cell phone and internet service allowing. And uh, please send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Please join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And that's the end of the show. Thanks for listening.